When I found out I was gonna be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, friends, and welcome to the first Wednesday, the first happy hour in the month of June. We have made it. It is June 2nd, and I don't know what's happening in your world on June 2nd, but in my world, I do know this. My kids are out of school now, so we are in our first week of summer, and when my kids were little, I had the list. I had the calendars. I had the time that at 10 a.m. we're going to do this. Now that I've got teenagers, I'm like, guys, you just got to be up by 10 a.m., all right? Here's the rule that we have right now, (laughs) up by 10 a.m. We are doing something fun and interesting in our house this summer that I'll tell you about later, but it involves a family book club. I'll tell you that much. Friends, this is a show today that I can guarantee so many of you are going to head over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy books and you're going to order this book immediately. I'm speaking with Dane Ortland today and I was given his book a couple months ago and my husband devoured it last year and just couldn't stop talking about it. And I had a chance to read it over my birthday weekend, actually. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And I tell Dane this, you'll hear it twice, but I read this book and just cried so many tears of how personal and intimate Jesus is to us. And it is good news for those that are followers of him. Dane and his family live outside of Chicago, Illinois. And in fact, he just left the publishing world in the past couple of months ago to begin his new role as senior pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church in Naperville, Illinois. Him and his wife, Stacy have five kids. And his newest book, Gentle and Lowly, that we talk about today is one that I hope all of you get in your hands sometime this year and read. Today's conversation, there's no way around it to say it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and his personality and his character and how he comes towards us as his children. Guys, before we get to my conversation with Dane today, I do want to say that on Friday, we begin a summer series. We've never done this before, and we're so excited about it. And we're doing a summer series called Encounter. In fact, here's a little clip to tell you more about the series. It's running in June and July this summer. The definition of encounter is to come upon or experience, especially unexpectedly. For those of us that are following Jesus, we've all had an encounter with him at some point in our lives. Some of those encounters have been mysterious, like we read about where Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he was never the same after that. Or like the woman at the well that we read about in John chapter 4, who met Jesus, and despite what her culture might have shamed her for, Jesus offers her living water, and her life was never the same. Or like when Simon Peter meets Jesus and has an encounter with him while fishing, and he left everything to follow him. You see, encounters with Jesus, they change us forever. These are stories of change. 
Yeah, so I I didn't grow up in the church. I never had a relationship with God growing up. Um, I my family was uh, both my parents were professors, so it was really an intellectual family, and the focus was always on achieving or uh, fitting in or you know doing all the things that the world says to do. And after my parents got divorced uh, when I was fourteen, I spiraled into a cycle of alcoholism and drug abuse, and um, really stemming from from depression, I think, and um, and lack of identity and. Uh, and there was some abuse in my childhood. I was sexually abused as a child as well. So I think some of that was repressed and was driving a lot of that. Um, okay. So you're dropped out of school. Um, by 21, you've mm-hmm. had numerous abortions. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Yeah. So I um, I was on the floor of a public bathroom one day. Uh, it was February 10th of 2001. And I was just, I just started bawling. I was watching my tears hit the floor and I just said, God help me. And I have no idea why I said it. Uh, it. It was like my soul crying out from mm-hmm. from the depth of a pit. I had no other words. And that night, that very night, just a few hours later, I ended up meeting someone who was 18 years old and he was three years sober. And he took me to my first recovery meeting mm. that next day. And I've been sober since that day, which was February 11th of 2001. So you went, you were sober since then immediately. So come back on Friday for the first episode in our series, Encounter. In fact, it's a conversation about my encounter with Jesus and also a girl that I met at church who is changing her college campus because of her encounter with Jesus as well. Come back here on Friday for that. All right, guys, here's my conversation with Dane Ortland. Dane, welcome to the happy hour. Thanks, Jamie. Great to talk to you today. This is exciting, and I'm so glad that you're here. I was telling you before we started of how much I've enjoyed your newest book, Gentle and Lowly the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And my husband, Aaron, actually was reading the book and told me that it was one of the best books he ever read. And so, of course, I was like, well, if it's one of the best books you've ever read, I got to get on this train, too. (laughs) And so I have enjoyed it as much. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you are most welcome. This is my privilege and honor to talk with you, Jamie. Oh, this is fun. Okay, so introduce yourself to our listeners. Where do you live? What do you do besides writing this book? Tell us all the things. Yeah, I'm sitting in Naperville, Illinois right now, uh, where I pastor at Naperville Presbyterian Church. So we're outside Chicago. And I live, actually, I'm transitioning into this role, Jamie, out of 10 years in publishing at Crossway up in Wheaton, where I currently live. We've bought a house here in the church's neighborhood. We'll move down this summer. My wife and I and our five kids, four boys and a girl, ages 14 down to five. So we're in kind of in the middle of a big uh, life transition here. Seven months ago, I started this pastoral call. That is a big change in the midst of, of COVID and all the things that that has brought as well. How has that transition been for you and your family? I mean, I know y'all aren't even transitioned all the way, but that, I mean, that's a big life change. It's a big life change. It would have been a big life change without a pandemic, without five kids, without all of my weirdness, but we're having a blast. I'm having a ton of fun is the main answer, Jamie. Honestly, I'm having a total blast and I am completely overwhelmed. <laughs> At the same time. I got the cruise set at about 95 miles an hour. I look forward to decelerating down to the speed limit, but we're having a lot of fun. That is so exciting. Now, I don't want to assume anything here, and I'm sorry that I don't know this. You said you're leaving publishing to go to the pastoral position. Is this your first time as a pastor? First time. I'm 42 years old, and I'm totally green trying to figure this out. I did all my schooling, Jamie, expecting to go into the pastor. That's what I was planning and hoping and wanting to do. And you know how this goes in our lives. The Lord redirects us in ways we don't see coming. 
And I don't know, maybe I'm just a really slow learner or something, but 21 years ago, half my life ago, I was thinking I'm called to do pastoral ministry. (laughs) And 21 years later, I'm finally doing it. So I God be praised, but yeah, it's been a weird journey. I love hearing that so much. And that's an encouragement (laughs) to all of us who think we have our goal in mind. This is what we're going to do. And God's like, I'm going to just take you on a different little detour for a little bit. And here you are. And so this will be a big transition for your family as well. I mean, not even just for you as myself being married to a pastor. I know the complexities that that sometimes brings. And, you know, the pastoral ministry is not new to you in a sense from your family, but it is going to be a transition. How is your wife looking forward to this? She is such a trooper. I mean, if I went home, I said, hey, I spent a little while this afternoon, Jamie Ivey's show, and she thinks we should move to Ethiopia. She would say from the next room, tell me when to pack. She's (laughs) all in. She is just a completely non-complicating, joyful, trusting God with me. But it is a big move. I mean, we're just going one Chicago suburb south to the next one, but it means all my kids are getting ripped out of their schools and going into new schools church stays the same because we've been at the church for 14 years now, but it's, it actually, we might as well be moving to Timbuktu as far as, especially my older kids who are going to have almost totally new friend networks and all that. So my dad said to us, you know, guys, God isn't just calling Dane to this church. He's calling you seven to this church. And we have been uh, holding on to that truth. We believe that. So good. It's so good, Dan. My husband and I walked through something a couple of years ago where we didn't leave where we are now, but it was God was doing some things that on this on this side of heaven, we'll under, under, never understand why he took us right. through the journey he did. But we clung to that same truth as in, you know, yeah. this is just, just an Aaron Ivy calling. This would be an Aaron right. and Jamie and Caden and Amos and Deacon and Story calling because right. we too believe that, that God is in the business of using families and not mm. just, oh, look, Dane has a new job. So I'm glad that you said that. That is comforting. It is comforting. Okay, well, I want to jump into this book because the first time I heard about this book actually was when my husband quoted it in one of his sermons. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in who's he quoting and where's this from? And I want to know more. Tell me about this. Mm -hmm. And so, Dane, the only thing I can say to you, and I'll try to say it without crying. Oh, my gosh, I just got emotional. The tears just came into my eyes is I read most of this book beside a pool, which is my favorite place to read a book over my birthday weekend and there were so many moments that I underlined and closed the book and literally just had tears tears of I just read something that reminded me how much Jesus loves me and I don't know is that the kind of response you're getting from people when they say they read what are they saying to you besides what Jamie Ivy is saying that you that this book brought me to tears so many times praise God that's what I'm hearing time and again wonder of wonders am not Hey, Dane, thanks so much. That um, gave me a theological footnote that I needed to my whole doctrinal framework. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, we want good, good theology, but yeah, well, you just said, sister, that's what God was doing in me in the preparation to write and the writing of the book. And I mean, at the end of the day, what else matters? Mm, What else matters? It's so true. Now, you know, I like talking to authors because I know that usually when they pen a work, it's because God's done something in them Mm -hmm. to produce this. And so can you take me back to what God did in you previous Mm -hmm. to even writing this book to where this would be the overflow of what he had done in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, and it's it wasn't really so much a 180 in my heart and mind and life so much as I'm so thankful for the family I grew up in, the churches I grew up in, the the seminaries I went to. I wouldn't trade all that for anything, 
but something went from 2D to 3D, from audio to video, from uh, black and white to color in who I believed was the actual Jesus <laughs> there. Uh, who is this one I'm actually following? Who is this one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The risen Christ that I'm going to see face to face one day. What's he really like? And honestly, Jamie, I mean, the, the answer is it was, it's been my own ongoing sin, shame, regret, guilt, and anguish over the last decade of my life that forced me to settle once and for all. For me, I needed to figure out, I needed to know, is his patience wearing thin? Or actually, does he love me most in my worst? Is it my deepest pockets of sin, shame, and regret? Those dark crevices of my heart that I don't talk about at small group, is that where actually Christ's heart is drawn the strongest? If that's true, and these guys who've been dead 400 years ago in another part of the planet showed it to me in the scripture, if that's true, that's sustainable discipleship. Actually, I can enjoy being a Christian if that's who he is. So it's just my own weirdness, dysfunction, and sin that forced me. I must know what is he really like most deeply like. You take us through this book with all the different chapters, such as, you know, his heart in action, the happiness of Christ, the beauty, the emotional life, the tender friend, what our sins evoke. And so you walk us through those scripturally, talk about Jesus. And I want to go back to the very beginning, the title of this book, Gentle and Lowly. And you you talk to us that there's this one particular place in all of scripture where Jesus opens up about his heart. And so for you, like our hearts, who we are, what drives us? What did that do for you, realizing that? And that really set the stage for the whole book. So can you talk us through that gentle and lowly concept that Jesus talks about in Matthew 11? Well, I knew that Jesus was great, Mm. and I believed that he was good. But in my own mind and heart, his greatness was outstripping his goodness. His, you know, the Revelation 1 Christ, who he's got a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and John falls down on his face when he sees him, that that Christ, not a mushy kind of um, therapist Christ, but that one is the one who, in the, as you said, Jamie, in the one place, the one place where he says, here's what my heart is. And we know the heart from the scripture isn't anything frothy. It's what gets us out of bed in the mornings, what, what we love. It's what we're daydreaming about. Motivation headquarters. His is, if nothing else, the irreducible core <laughs> is gentleness and lowliness. That I would never Like if someone handed me a Bible and I had never read that verse and I knew the rest of the Bible well, but they whited out those two adjectives, I would not pick those. I would never pick those. It's that arresting and astonishing. We're familiar with it perhaps, but that is unspeakably consoling that he, if nothing else, handles me tenderly, never a sliver of manipulation, totally guileless and straightforward non-harshly, and that he's lowly, that he's not like a politician you have to go through layers of security to get to. He's not someone who, I mean, recently at church, we've been having people take temps as people walk in, just so obnoxious. He doesn't do that. We don't have to show him a vaccination card. He doesn't put us on hold. Say He doesn't say, take a ticket, get in line. He's, I mean, that Revelation 1 Christ is the, the nearest, most, here's how I like to talk about it, Jamie. All you have to do is collapse to get to him. The way you get to him 
isn't by climbing a ladder. It's by falling down. (laughs) All you do is fall into him. But most of us are too proud to do even that. Right, right. I think that's what's surprising about this too, Dane, is that a lot of people would have two separate views, like two extreme views of Jesus. And and you're presenting this third way that Jesus calls himself gentle and lonely. We'd have two extreme. One extreme of like, Jesus is going to strike me dead when he hears of my sin, as if we think he doesn't know. Like, you know, Jesus is going to strike me dead. And then the other extreme is like, Jesus is cool. Like, he's just a great guy and he's cool with whatever. And both of these lead us astray and are faulty. And so that one in the middle, I think that's what provokes the tears when you read about him to go, wow, nobody else is really like that with me all the Uh, time. Yeah, exactly, Jamie. And it's, um, it's that he is both of those perfectly and fully. In other words, he's not morally spineless. He cares. In the paragraph before in Matthew 11, he's pronouncing woes on impenitent cities. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is not a softy, Jesus, but it's that he is the Christ who pronounces woes is the one who, when we come to him, not in impenitence, but penance with need, with desire, with some kind of, I need you, I need help here. He can't resist that. That is what sucks him in. That's what he finds irresistible. And I just think this is a Christ. This is a Christ we don't talk about. We don't celebrate. We don't sing about. We don't pray to. And no wonder so many of us are just exhausted and miserable Christians. Mm. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people as followers of Jesus can be afraid of, and it is that coming towards Jesus with our sin and our suffering. And you say here that that he actually moves towards it. Right. And that can be a little disorienting a little bit because we would think, I would think that Jesus would run away from our sin because he's holy and he's God and he, you know, all the things that we know, there are some theological truths there as well, but Jesus actually moves towards it. What is the good news for people wrapped up in that? Incredible. Well, the fact that he is holy, as you rightly just said, Jamie, means that he's not like us in every way. One major way in which he's not like us is he doesn't flee from our grossness when we bring it to him. His holiness is one way to understand how our sin and suffering, as you put it, is irresistible to him. He's drawn. So Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, I'm gentle and holy in heart. That's okay. There's a true little statement from Christ, but that's not out of accord with what we see in all four Gospels, as he's saying, hey, you stupid disciples, no, let the kids come to me, and he sweeps them up in his arms, as he's reaching out and touching lepers, giving them their, giving prostitutes their dignity back, their God-given glory, when they are so plateaued, flatlined, hollowed out, believe they're, they're completely worthless, which we are all navigating, battling through all the time. I certainly am. And Jesus comes, and he, he lifts us, lifts our chin, and looks us in the eye and says, I'm not like you. I'm drawn to you in your need brought to me. He loves that. And that, that's just, that's a savior worth passing on to your next door neighbor. So true. You, you write in here, you say, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. And I remember reading that and underlining it and starring it and thinking so many times as Christians, we are suffering silently and feel as though we don't have a friend. There's no one that I could actually bring this pain and suffering to. And the good news is that Jesus, you said his heart is too bound up with ours. What do you mean by that? Well, we're his body. 
when I have a body part hurting, that hurts the whole body. We're all suffering together. When uh, Saul was persecuting the early church, Acts 9, the risen Lord knocks him off of his horse and says, why are you persecuting me, not why are you persecuting Christians way down there on earth? So the reality that you're describing there in your question, Jamie, is I th- is captured by one of my favorite words, though it's not a word we use much, is the word solidarity. That just means withness, bound up with us, so that when we are in anguish in a deeper way than any other human, any other spouse even, can know our Savior is bearing, shouldering that suffering with us. Bracket out sin. He never sinned, nor will he ever. Bracket that out. Nevertheless, every other pain and anguish, he is walking through with us. And Hebrews would say he has walked through already. He knows it from the inside out. He doesn't have to ask us, what's that like? So that is profoundly comforting, deeply comforting, that when we are feeling so alone, actually, though we need human friends, most deeply, most ultimately and fundamentally, we have a friend with a capital F who is with us and can't not be with us, he'd have to get sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb (laughs) in order for him to say, okay, you're on your own now. Impossible. You know, it makes me think towards the end of the book, you talk about, okay, there's this idea that, you know, Jesus, we know as Christians, he he loved us. He died for us. He forgave us our sins. Mm. We'll even go as far as to what you're talking about. He's our friend. He's with us. We're bound together. But then there's that moment where you're like, what about when I've screwed up royally after salvation which there's some theological things in there too about our salvation being worked out to the end but but i'm saved i'm following jesus well now what is he still going to continue to love me in the midst of that and i think that's a question that a lot of people struggle with because they don't have a grasp on this and so can you talk through that a little bit uh that is such an urgent question jamie it's one that i have wrestled with and to many degrees still wrestle with um i actually and maybe this is my own weirdness or wretchedness or something i actually don't struggle that much with my pre-conversion sins feeling guilty for them i was not alive then i wasn't born again that's when i was a zombie now it's my sins now it's not my past but my present stupidity that's what really makes me wake up at 2 a.m and say what in the world is going on when is he going to throw in the towel on me and i think passages like romans 5 1 to 10 where it basically says hey you think that you need to realize, yes, Christ died for you while you were a sinner, Dane, but what? follow the logic through. If he did that when you were his enemy, how much more <laughs> now that you are his friend? If you did that when you were orphaned, if you did that when you were in the orphan, now that he has grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and dropped you into his palace— How do you think he's going to feel about you now that you are legally his child? Well, put that way, we understand, yes, we're going to keep screwing up, but his heart is drawn out all the more to us in that. In the same way, I like kids, but I love my kids. Right. When they screw up, actually, here's what's true. What goes on inside of me? When one of my kids is screwing up, there's, I get angry. But also there's a part of me that actually my heart goes out to them in a deeper way than it otherwise would Mm. because they're mine. They're in my family. Mm -hmm. So extrapolating out, I don't want to create Christ in my image, but I do believe family and children and everything is a picture of divine realities. That is how God, that is how Christ feels about us. So I think 
Why do we come to church once a week? To tell each other the answer to your question. Yes, you are screwed up and you keep screwing up and we want to grow. We're here by word and sacrament to become Christians all over again, (laughs) to believe the gospel all over again, because now is when we need it most. That is so good. And sometimes there's this lie that we sometimes believe that we believed it once. Then what is this believing the gospel all over again? And I find myself going, I have to tell myself what is true all over again, because in whatever you said, my weirdness or my wretchedness, I don't know. I'll forget what is true about Jesus. And he's saying, I am still here. Okay. I want you to talk through this because one of the things I found so interesting here was you had two chapters, chapter eight to the utmost, and then chapter nine, which is an advocate. Mm. To the utmost, you use uh, the scripture, Hebrews 725, which says he always lives to make intercession for them. And then for the advocate, you said, 1 John 2, 1, which says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I would like for you to take us through the difference between intercession and advocating, because I found it to be like just astounding about the two differences and why they matter. So can you walk us through that? You bet. John Bunyan, the old Puritan, was my coach in that. And he persuaded me that um, when the New Testament talks about, and by the way, We don't really talk about either today. We talk a lot today. Wouldn't you agree about what Christ did 2,000 years ago, his atoning work? Hallelujah. Let's never stop talking about it. But there's something he's doing today, too. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's not bored. I mean, you say this. this, I said, wow. I wrote wow in my book. You said... Jesus is praying for you right now. Let's go. I, my mind, I, my little bitty brain cannot even take it. So carry on. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but that's yeah. a wow thing. That's great. Well, his intercession, Hebrews 7, Romans 8, his intercession is what he is doing constantly. The texts make clear in Hebrews 7, Romans 8, that this is what he is doing before the courts of heaven, angels looking on before the Father, whose own heart is delighted to receive it. Christ isn't overcoming a reluctant. The Father isn't a little grouchier than the Son. Nevertheless, in the economy of redemption, this is how it works. The Son is interceding for us all the time. And Bunyan convinced me that when we speak of Christ as our advocate, what that is, is when we lapse into an egregious sin, when we really screw up. That yes, Christ is always interceding for us, namely applying his finished work in the court of heaven, applying now what he accomplished then. But when we fall into sin and error, then he rises up all the more as our advocate. So the two are not in tension. They're they're complementary, mutually reinforcing, because that's what the text says there in 1 John 1. If we sin, we have an advocate. My little children, I write these things Mm. so that you don't sin. Don't do it. (laughs) Mm. But when you do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Bunyan is just following the logic of what the New Testament says about intercession and advocacy, and both together are powerful, uh, calming realities for our ongoing Christian lives. It's so true. You said an intercessor stands between two parties. An advocate Mm. doesn't simply stand in between two parties, but steps over and joins the one party as he approaches the other. Jesus is not only an intercessor, but an advocate. And like intercession, advocacy is neglected in the church today, which you said. And I found that so comforting. The advocate for sure, the intercessor, and I just don't think I had ever truly thought about the complexity of what that meant and the ongoing current right now in my life that Jesus is that for me. And honestly, I know I've said this before already, Dane, but it is this other aspect of Jesus' character and heart that nobody else does for me. My husband loves me a whole lot. I can guarantee right now he's not thinking about me because he's working. Mm. 
And I wasn't thinking about him until I said his name because I'm working. You know what I mean? And so there's nobody else in my life that gives me what Jesus does. And you pulling that out has just been so, so, so beautiful. I love it. Okay, I want to go on to this next thing. I have a long list, Dane, so I just don't know how long we'll be here. I, I, you know, I, I will keep it short because I want people to go get the book. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. 
chapter 10, the beauty of the heart of Christ. And you're a parent to five. I'm a parent to four. A lot of our listeners are parents. A lot of our listeners are around children, aunts, teachers, whatever it might be. And this struck me here because you start out talking about a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached to the children in his congregation in 1740. And so he started out as a very short sermon. You said he started out and he said, there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And then you got to the very end. You're like, okay, parents, this is the part for you. And you said this, you said, This is to put a sharper edge on it, to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. Our goal as parents is that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing their sins and sufferings repel Christ. And again, I told you I cried a lot when I read this. I cried as a mom. I have a 17-year-old, which means I'm a year away from sending an 18-year-old off into the world. And it made me reflect and go, if there's nothing else he knows, if there's nothing else he knows, does he know that his sin and his sufferings, they don't repel Christ. And so can you talk to us as parents about this a little bit? And listen, I think parenting is like the hardest gig I'll ever have in my entire life. And so you, this whole chapter is just like, this is a hard job. So can you talk about like, what does that even look like as you're a dad, as you and your wife are parenting? What? It, how do you achieve this goal as best as you possibly can? Oh man, wow. Well, when they're real young, when they're in cribs, we are God them. We are Christ. We're making them feel as we're tickling them and smiling at them over the edge of the crib, actually what the creator is like. we are. But then as they grow, that develops and gets more sophisticated. I had a probably, he was probably 10 or 11, come up to me yesterday after our church service and asked me, was I A-mill, post-mill, or pre-mill? And I we talked about it. Actually, I care about that, what our view of the millennium is. That matters. I have a certain view, and I defend it biblically. I don't care what he thinks. I don't care what he needs. What you just said is over these years in this godly home that he's a part of to, yes, be be catechized, be taught sound doctrine and truth. But that's the skeleton. What's the beating heart? What's the flesh? Skeletons don't attract us. Hearts do. So what he needs is against a backdrop of truth, of good doctrine, yes, What he needs to know is what Jesus is actually like as a person, not just um, Nicene orthodoxy, not just atoning vicarious substitutionary work, but what's he actually like as a person. And if he has all the, if he's crossed every T theologically, dotted every I, and he goes off to college and Christ is just skeletal to him, who wouldn't abandon that Christ? I would. I can't do that. Who cares? So yes, what I want is I want to, I want my kids through my fathering and no one needs this more than me because I'm not wired in a gentle way. I want my kids through my fathering to feel what Jesus is actually like. I want to hug them so hard. I want to spend so much time with them. I want to be so accessible to them. (laughs) I want to be, I mean, the sun gives off light and heat. I want them to hear, have not only the light of instruction, paternal instruction, but the heat of paternal love. I want it to be both and. And a part of that for me, unlike for Christ, is I'm going to be coming to them all the time and saying, I am so sorry for the way I handled that. And even that as a fallen human is communicating something of softness of heart. I just want them to to know from me. I want them to I want them to grow up and look back when I'm dead and say when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, my dad for all his imperfections 
He gave me a sense. He gave me the aroma of what Jesus is actually like in his imperfect fallen ways. And if I do that, I don't care if, care if they're A-mill, pre-mill, or post-mill. <laughs> that will be enough. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes me think even with parenting is this idea of grace. And, you know, this is the gospel. This is the good news, the grace. And you actually say in your book, you say, the grace of God comes to us no more, no less than Jesus Christ comes to us. And then you right. said this line, which is so beautiful. In the biblical gospel, we are not given a thing of grace, but we are given a person of Jesus. And that small statement is profound for people to understand that it, it to take it from this theological concept of what grace is, which again is good to know, and then to pull that all down and know that we are given Jesus, like we are right. given Jesus. How are you teaching that to your people in your church, to the people in your home? Like that is just this basic foundational point because of our sin but that we are given Jesus, even if our sins evoke something that we feel is doesn't deserve Jesus. Right. God says, hey, good news. I'm still yeah. giving you Jesus. Yeah, exactly. What a great question, Jamie. The answer is, I wish I knew how to do that. I Jamie, want my people know to know how to do that. this. <laughs> they are viewing God the way I have most of my life and in ways I don't even realize continue to, namely, as a God way, way, way up there, a Christ way up in heaven, and I'm down here, and he deposits grace into my account while remaining at a safe, secluded, withdrawn distance. There's some, maybe some far-off way in which that is true. But he, it's actually Roman Catholic theology to say that grace is a stockpiled thing that we stockpile up, which ultimately wound up meaning for them that you can sort of tap into it on behalf of someone else and the, the treasury of merits and all this weird theology. But actually, we don't get a thing like God writing us a check for grace. It's not like um, a formula that he sends down transactionally to us. We are given his own son, and his son gets to us via his spirit. The two great gifts in my life are the second and the third person of the Trinity, planned and orchestrated and ordained by the first person of the Trinity. I get God. So I want my people to know that you're not getting something stockpiled here. You're getting, you are, yes, I mean, Paul, the, the New Testament will talk about the grace of God. Yes. But what they mean behind that, click on that. What comes up is a flesh and blood person who proved it, who sweeps us into his very heart. So I, I want to do all I can in teaching a class, in preaching a sermon, in discipling, to communicate that there this, this is personal. I don't mean human necessarily, but God is personal. He's not a force. And so I think we need to keep keep teaching our people that. You know, so many people, and this may not be new, it may just be more vocal because we have the internet now are choosing to to leave the foundation that they grew up with. They're choosing to leave the church. They're choosing to, whatever the word may be, deconstruct or whatever it might look like. When I read your book in particular, and then just, you know, the scriptures and read about Jesus, it breaks my heart and also feels unimaginable at the same time yeah. to leave yeah. this type of person. That's right. And so when we see this happening so often, what do yeah. you see as in underneath that? Because... Yeah. Again, it feels unimaginable to me. No. So what does that what do you think about that? They're leaving the wrong they're leaving an artificial picture of who they think he is. And maybe they've been taught who he is and shown and convinced 
by um, bad parenting, bad pastors. I don't know. How can you leave this one? I know theologically, we are hard-hearted, dead in our sin. Theologically, we will resist God and Christ unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. Okay, I believe that. All right, we we all believe that. that. Great. Nevertheless, at a human level, he is the inexhaustible, irresistible Christ. When he is held forth as who he most truly and deeply is, you can't avoid this guy. No way. When people walk away, they go to college at age 18, they, they're in the young career, they, they walk away, they're leaving who they wrongly think he is. Well, I want to leave that one too. Right. I'm not interested in that guy yeah. who's looking at his watch saying, get it together. Mm. So, But if he is the Christ that we are given, as you said, in the scripture, actually, I can't bear the thought of wandering away from him. Dave, I think I could guess the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, because I just want to hear it from you. When you're writing this book, actually, I have two questions for you. Number one is, who are you writing for? Because I do know that as an author, you have a you have a person in your brain as who you're writing to. So I want to know, who are you writing this for? And number two, what is your hope and prayer for every person as they close the last page of this book? Who am I writing it to? I've gotten a little annoyed. Forgive me here. This is just my own sin bubbling up. I've gotten annoyed when people say to me, Hey, Dane, I'm so glad you did that book during a pandemic. That's when people really needed it. All right, maybe there's some truth to that. (laughs) I didn't write it for those who are like only bottomed out, sheltering in place, isolated. Maybe the need for this savior is exacerbated in such a state. I'm sure that's true. And just so everyone's clear, you wrote this way before we ever had COVID-19 on our brains. That's right. But when I say in the subtitle, sinners and sufferers, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Um, I was driving the marketing team a little bit crazy, as I sometimes do at Crossway, because they say, who's this for? We want to pitch it to the right people. And the authors, they always hear the same word. It's for everyone. But they say, no, we really need to know who's it for. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, guys. Sinner and sufferer, every single human being slots into both categories. That is all of us, actually, all the time. All of us, at some point, if sin is red, and suffering is blue, then it's not like I'm going through life white and every once in a while, oh, blip of red, oh, blip of blue. Rather, all of my life has some purple all the time. There's always some shade of red and some shade of blue going on inside of me. In my first world, air-conditioned, well-hydrated office here, there's sin and there's suffering going on all the time. So actually, it is not just for those whose life has suddenly gone into meltdown, though it's not less than for them. It's for anyone who is navigating life as a sinner and sufferer, which is all of us, who needs to know what's he really like for them. And I can't remember the second it's question. It's so good. Well, I'll, I'll say this is, <laughs> is I am not in this massive season of suffering and I'm yeah. not in some massive like excruciate sin that I need to be called out for. I have sin every yeah. day. Don't yeah. get me wrong. And let me tell you, there's a lot to be to be dealt with. But I felt that same thing. I'm reading this yeah. book and just going, man, this is the Jesus that I serve. This is the Jesus that yeah. I love. My second question for you is, what do you want everyone to know, think, feel when they close the last page of this book? Oh, my goodness. I just want them to calm down. Just calm really, down? Yes. <laughs> just relax. We wake up in the morning and the internal RPMs oh, are yeah. cranked way up high. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about we wake up and all our hopes and dreams rush at us like <laughs> like wild animals. It's so true. Uh, we might look groggy pre-coffee, but there is so much going on inside of us. I just wanted people to close the book and 
again, more of my own sin bubbling up. What annoys me is when people say, now, Dane, okay, I read the book. How do I apply this to my life? I want to say, if you have to ask that question, you weren't listening. That's not the point. The point is just enjoy it. (laughs) Just calm down. Just relax. Just be assured. Take a deep breath with your soul. Inhale. Okay, maybe actually I can make it through a few more decades of this miserable fallen world before I'm dead and at rest and released and safe. Because actually, if I'm in Christ, I'm as safe now as I will be then. I'm going to have a lot less sin then. I'll have no sin then, but I can't be any safer than I am. I am invincible right now if I'm in Christ. He's never going to disunite me from him. So it's going to be okay. So I just say, hey, calm down. <laughs> I love it. I knew what you were going to say because in your epilogue, you end the book saying, hey, what do I do now? And you say, number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> go to Jesus. He is waiting for you there. Dane, thank you for this project that you worked on. And I'm excited about what is ahead for you and your family and your church and your community. And so just grateful for your words and the ministry that you're doing for all of us that are reading them way far from Chicago. So you're ministering to all of us. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I would like to hear from you. What are you reading these days? Mm, well, I actually, I just started it. <laughs> I just started into Narnia again. So I'm about four chapters into The Magician's Nephew. Now, um, you know, that was my favorite uh, one out of most all of the books was The Magician's Nephew. Isn't wow. that funny? And it's like some people don't even know that it exists. They start right with The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Diggory and Polly. And, you know, it gives me such strength for the journey to read those stories because so much they're fictional, but they're non-fictional in all the truth that is coming through. And so as an adult, I like those even more than I did as a kid. And I'm never going to stop reading them. That I love that. Well, Dane, we appreciate you. And I'm so glad that we got to spend a couple minutes today talking about the heart of Jesus. Is there anything better to spend our time talking about? So I'm grateful for you. Thanks so much, Jamie, for the great conversation, the the thoughtful questions. Really a joy to talk with you. All right, friends, I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. In fact, let me remind you again, the book is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, which is all of us alike, just like Dane reminded us. 
I want to let you know that we do have an exclusive content question that you can only get on YouTube. And you can find that at youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. I asked Dane, which you just heard about people walking away from the faith for people giving up on Jesus. And then I also asked him, what does it look like for us to encourage and love our loved ones who have walked away from Jesus? And so his answer is over on YouTube. Guys, thanks for listening today. The show is edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell. The whole thing's produced by Lindsay Sweeney. And I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. Don't forget, come back on Friday for our very first episode in the Encounter series, where I'm telling you my story of how I met Jesus. And we got some special guests as well. I'll see you back here on Friday. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.